I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2. Today we are, what's the right word? Is it, commem- is it commemorating? Is it remembering? Uh, I think they're synonymous, right? I think they're synonymous. Today we are commemorating Pentecost Sunday. Uh, I shared with you earlier during the prayer, I, I, I'll just tell you, I've never been a part of a church that celebrated Pentecost Sunday, and I think it's paramount. It's the birth of the church. And so I decided this year to say that, yes, we are going to celebrate Pentecost Sunday, and we are going to look back and see what took place at the birth of the church of Jesus Christ. It was on May 26, 30 A.D., 50 days after the ascension of Christ, that Peter preached that infamous message found in Acts chapter 2, and that the Holy Spirit did descend and came down upon the apostles and the gathered believers in power. It was on that day there was a great sound of a mighty rushing wind and cloven tongues of fire. What looked like cloven tongues of fire rested upon them. And Peter, the abstract failure, the one who denied Christ, gets up and under the influence and the fullness of the Holy Spirit, preaches an amazing, an amazing message that day. And 3,000 people are born again. If the calculations on the calendar are right, this would have occurred on Sivan 6th of the Hebrew calendar. And it really was the celebration of Moses receiving the law in Sinai, which also occurred, I follow this gentleman called the sacred calendar. Daniel knows we've had this conversation before. Who has tracked some of the biblical dates back. And uh, as the children of Israel were led out of Egypt and 50 days later they were given the law, so upon the crucifixion and the ascension of Jesus Christ was by no accident fell on the great feast of Pentecost. And the church is born. Just a little bit of background. Pentecost is the 50th day after the uh, Passover Sabbath. It was the feast of joy and gladness. In the time of year, it attracted a very large number of visitors from Jerusalem. Primarily, it was one of the three mandatory feasts that required all Jewish males to go up to Jerusalem. The other two, the other two being Passover and the Feast of Booths. Right? So they were required to make this pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. And it was the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of First Fruits. As I mentioned, the anniversary of the Sinaitic legislation or the, the giving of the law of Moses on, on, on Sinai. And it pointed, you know how Passover foreshadows the coming of Christ, the death, the atoning blood, and all the others? It pointed to the first Christian harvest. This was going to be the first Christian harvest. How many people were there, how many Christians after Christ's resurrection and ascension that we know of in the Scripture? Well, they tell us about 120. I often think about all the times. Where were all the people that he preached to? Where were the, you know, the 5,000 to 15,000 that he fed lunch and the 4,000 that he fed lunch to? Where were all the people on the great sea of the, on the seashore that 
Christ got so crowded they had to put him in a boat and push off a little bit because the hordes of people were around him. If we were to judge the ministry of Jesus Christ like we judge ministries today, the ministry of Christ would be an abstract failure. We'd say the Holy Spirit's not with him. Look, he doesn't have a lot of people. And as a matter of fact, if you look from Genesis to Revelations, what you'll, fi- what you'll find is most of the people of God, most of the men of God who did great and phenomenal works, never really had big crowds. Let me share something with you. Crowds, buildings, and all the other different things are not the measurement of the effectiveness of the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have cathedrals that are jam-packed. We have churches in multi-million dollar buildings that uh, every two hours put on another show. Professional musicians, everything else. And they have everything that looks like the church. But in many times, they're devoid of power. Give me 40 people filled with the Holy Spirit in a barn over 4,000 filled in a palace on any given day. God does great things in small numbers. The Old Testament tells us we're not to despise the day of small things. And so we got to get out of our mindset this thing that if God is in it, the work is growing and growing and growing. And I shared with you a few weeks ago when I spoke about the uh, message about Elijah, I said, you know what? When revival does indeed come, there are going to be many people out there that the first thing they're going to do is critique it. This is not God. This is not how it works. We have a lot of people. We have a great form of religion. We got all the exteriors. The United States has more books, more colleges, more schools, more anything Christian than any other nation on earth. And yet, look at the moral character of our land. Back to Pentecost. What we trace at Pentecost is not only just the birth of the Christian church. That's not only it. But what we see at Pentecost is the coming of the Holy Spirit. Unlike at any other time previously in kingdom history. And what we also see at Pentecost, because it was one of those holidays where people came from all over in the sovereignty and the providence of God. God selected that particular day when there would be a multitude of visitors. And what we see from the Scripture is all of the countries that are represented there are almost exclusively the countries where the Gospel spread immediately. God in His wisdom. By the way, there were people there from Rome. From Rome. And we've been studying Romans on Tuesday night. And the question was, who started Rome? No, it wasn't the Apostle Paul. It is believed it was those believers who were at Pentecost who heard the Gospel that repented and went back to Rome. And what did they do? What did they do? They shared the Gospel. And a church was born. So this is a little bit of the background to Pentecost. If I were to break up Acts chapter 2, if I were to outline it, you would see four divisions. The first division would, I would describe as the power of the Holy Spirit contained in Acts chapter 2, 
verses 1 through 13. If we turn in Acts chapter 2, we see right there. And it says, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. By the way, think about it. When Moses went up to the mountain to receive the law of God, the Bible says there were peals of thunder and lightning and the ground quake, and so awesome and terrible was the sight. And now at the, at the Feast of Pentecost, the same thing occurs. A like thing. All of a sudden, it wasn't a rushing wind. It was a sound like a rushing wind. A sound like a rushing wind. So God, God moves now and He comes down and He moves. And all of a sudden, there's some kind of sound. We don't know what it is, but it was equated to be some sound of a mighty rushing wind. There was a thundering, there was a stirring beginning right there in Jerusalem. Look at verse 3. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And notice verse 4. I love verse 4. I love verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. And the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now I'm not going to get into the whole tongue issue. That's a separate story unto itself. What I'm trying to show you here is the power of the Holy Spirit as it came upon the church at its birth. And notice verse 5, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because they were each one, what were they doing? Hearing in their own language. And they were amazed. And marveled, saying, why are not all these who are speaking, why are not all these people who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Verses 9 and 10 and 11 list some of the various tribes and countries that were there. Verse 12 says, And they continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? And the others were mocking, saying, Ah, these guys are crazy. They're just drunk. That's not what the Bible says, but that was my paraphrase. So we see in verses 1 through 13 the power of the Holy Spirit. In verses 14 through 36, we see the proclamation of the Holy Spirit, and we're not going to read through it. In verses 32 through 33, we see the prophecy of the Holy Spirit. And in verses 37 through 40, we see the proof of the Holy Spirit. Now, you'll notice something in that outline. It all dealt with the third person of the triune God, the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh my goodness, did you see that verse? It said they were all amazed at what they saw and what they heard. When was the last time people came into a church service and they were amazed at the preaching of the Word of God? When was the last time people came into a church service and they were amazed at the hymns that were presented? They were amazed at the prayer. I talk about getting back to vital few things, church. We need to get back to the vital few. We're going to see what they are. Our text today is going to focus on Acts chapter 2. 
verses 41 and 42. And it reads as follows. So then those who had received his word, this is speaking specifically of the preaching of Peter, those who had received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. The filling of the Spirit of believers produced a piercing of the heart. It produced a piercing of the heart. We see that in Acts 2, 37 and 38. And this piercing caused religious people to cast off their religiosity, to cast off their formalism and their traditionalism. And the filling of the Holy Spirit always brings the recognition of the holiness of God and the utter sinfulness of the human being. Soul saved. That's what took place. Souls were saved. How were they saved, by the way? Were they saved because Peter stood up and preached, God's got a wonderful plan for you? They were saved because Peter preached the gospel. If you look at the text after the service today, look at what Peter preaches. He preaches the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that this Christ was the fulfillment of prophecy, that there wasn't a salvation any other where, that we are to repent, we are to turn from our sins and turn to Christ. So piercing was the message that they cried out, what must we do to be saved? When the fullness of the Holy Spirit descends upon us, then we also will cry out, what must we do? Verse 41 is very clear. So then those who had received this word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 souls. And I want to focus on verse 42. And it says that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. You know, when revival comes, we will not have a cheap momentary thrill, not some cheap emotional experience. But we will be filled with the fear and the awe of God. You notice they go simultaneously, fear and awe of God. And we will have a revelation of His holiness and see how far short we fall. We will cry for God and for ourselves and we will yearn for God in His ways and His words. And we will delight in Christ. Delight in Christ. We will delight in the fellowship with the saints and we will delight at the proclamation of the gospel. We will delight about going to church. And none of these things are going to be laborious. There are four imprints that we see here in verse 42 that we're going to focus on today. Four imprints of the Holy Spirit. And here's the context. 
It is not upon the individual. It is upon the church. What is the church? It's the gathering of saved individuals in Christ. The bride of Christ. So we are going to see four imprints left by this great move of the Holy Spirit upon that first church. And they are as follows. They continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Fellowship in the Spirit, the breaking of bread, and corporate and personal prayer. Let's take a look at each one of them individually. First one, continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Put it plainly, this is not merely a desire for the Word of God, but this goes well beyond a desire for the Word of God. This calls for submission to the Word of God. Big difference. Many people know the Word of God, but they don't submit themselves to the Word of God. What we see immediately happening upon the proclamation of the Word of God was that they said, what must we do to be saved? But consequently, the imprint left by the Holy Spirit was that they were to submit to the Word of God. These folks submitted themselves to the Word of God and they did so out of joy and fear of the Lord. The Word of God is the most precious thing we have. Let me say that again. The Word of God is the most precious thing that we have as believers. We get an insight into the mind of God. It is not complete. There are not enough books, there are not enough volumes, there's not enough paper to capture the entire mind of God. That would be impossible. But God has provided us an insight into redemption and the revelation of himself between Genesis and Revelation. If you think the Bible is merely a historical book, a book of moral examples, that you do not desire it because it's, it's not my thing, then you're sorely mistaken. And may I add that you do not know the first thing about spiritual life. The Word of God is inerrant, without error. It is infallible as it pertains to its content. And it is inspired. It is God-breathed. In order for us as believers to grow, it is not merely necessary that we study the Word of God, we need to hunger for the Word of God. For a church to grow, a church needs to hunger for the Word of God. And I'm going to qualify, if I ever use the reference to a church growing, I am not talking about numeric growth, I am talking about spiritual growth. For a church to grow spiritually, it has to receive and submit itself to the Word of God. When you have been touched by God, genuinely touched by God, in the Holy Spirit, you will hunger for God's Word. That the very Word of God, and the very Word of God bears witness to this. Now listen, I'm going to have a lot of Scripture. So you can write it down if you can keep up with me. But I'll share something if you want to. Listen after the recording comes out on Sermon Audio and you can get the Scripture text. But we're going to go through some Scripture here. 
Listen to the words of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 15, 16. Thy words were found and I ate them. Thy words became for me a joy and a delight of my heart. For I have been called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. Jeremiah says the word of God, he was so desirous, he devoured it, he ate it. And notice what he says about the word. It is a joy and it is a delight. Psalm 138.2 I will bow down toward thy holy temple and give thanks to thy name for thy loving kindness and thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word according to all thy name. Psalm 119.60 The sum of thy word is truth in every one of thy righteous ordinances everlasting. Psalm 119.82 my soul languishes for thy salvation. I wait for thy word. Do you wait for the word of God? Does your soul languish when you know it? Not reading the word of God. Psalm 119.16 I shall delight in thy statutes. I shall not forget thy word. Psalm 119.105 I'm sure many of you know this. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. And a light unto my path. How is it that many who call themselves believers and do not have a desire for the Word of God? This is, this is considerable stuff. To have a desire to submit to the apostles' teaching, to remain in the teaching of the church, this is considerable. When we have been touched by the divine Spirit of God, when we are indwelt by the very Spirit of God, we will have a yearning for the Word of God. It is the Word of God that teaches. It is the Word of God that edifies. It is the Word of God that convicts, that confirms the will of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says all Scripture is inspired by God. Theopneustos by God. God breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God would be well equipped. Psalm 19, I love this. Psalm 19, 7-11. I love this portion of Scripture. The law of the Lord is perfect. Restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. All the word of God. Word of God. What was the first thing that the church in Jerusalem did, that first church? Is they continued in the apostles' teaching. Where did that teaching take place? It took place in the church. It was given in the church and then circulated outside. The church. Let me tell you something. Without the Word of God, there is no Christian and spiritual growth. 
There's no developing in righteousness, no knowledge of God. A.W. Tozer makes this statement. God is not the way we say He is. God is the way the Bible says He is. So the first thing they did is continued in the apostles' teaching. What's the second thing they did? It says fellowship. But again, I bring you back what is the context of Acts chapter 2. The context is the church, not the individual. So they talk about fellowship. This is fellowship in the Spirit. Fellowship is probably, perhaps, the most misused word in the Christian dictionary. I can't tell you how many churches I serve where the, where the rallying cry is, we must have fellowship, we must have fellowship. And what most people mean by that is just generic friendship. But the fellowship spoken here is fellowship in the Spirit within the context of the church. The word fellowship here is the Greek word koinonia, which means spiritual fellowship, fellowship in the Spirit. It's not generic friendship, right? You, you can't have fellowship in the Spirit if I say, hey, I'm going to Al's house to watch the UFC fight. That isn't, wouldn't qualify under this definition of fellowship. But if I was going to Al's house and others were coming there and we were coming together to, to pray and to edify and encourage one another, this would be an example of fellowship. What this really means is having spiritual things in common. The fellowship is in the, in the light of Christ. We are bound with people, not because they come to our church. We are bound with people because the Spirit of Christ dwells in them. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. We're out at clear blue sky. You, need, uh, um, you meet another Christian brother, another Christian sister. And you're talking to them for five minutes. You're talking to them for ten minutes. And there's a bonding. There's a rapport that instantaneously comes. There's a familiarity that you have with the individual. Even though you may have known them 15 minutes or 10 minutes. What is that? That is fellowship in the Spirit. The Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are indeed children of God. What the church doesn't need is more covered dish luncheons and more... Let's get away. What the church needs is come together. Come together in the Spirit. and Love one another. It is a partnership with one another because of Christ that causes us to serve one another. We serve one another. It's not burdensome. It's not laborious. We desire to serve. We desire to minister. That is a lot different than what takes place in most churches. The driving force behind this kind of fellowship is the fullness of the Holy Spirit. When you're full of the Spirit, you have no problem going and ministering to one another. As the church was birthed, thousands were saved. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And there, in that birth church, a genuine fellowship came forward. And it demonstrated what it actually did is when we come together in fellowship under the Spirit, it demonstrates the love of Christ, the unity of Christ, and the unity of 
the church universal. 1 John chapter 1, verses 2 and through 3 reflect this. And it reads, And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. Why? Notice what he says here. So that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with who? Is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's fellowship in the church. Considering these things to be true, then we need to ask ourselves, where can we have Spirit-filled fellowship? Where? Where do we go for this stuff? There's only one place. It's the church. It's the church. The the emphasis on Acts chapter 2. These things were present in the church. Now you cannot have that fellowship if you don't attend church regularly. It's just a cause and effect. Not attending church with regularity produces isolation. Spiritual weakness. Can I mention something too? The number one ploy of Satan against believers, remember this, the number one thing Satan is trying to achieve is if you are part of a body of believers and your brothers and sisters are praying for you, they're ministering to you, Satan wants you out of that. Why? Why? Let me ask you why. You got to ask the question. Everybody say why. Why? Why? I'm going to tell you. The reason why is simply this. The reason why is this. Because he wants to get you one-on-one. And if the enemy can get you out one-on-one, you're in for a rough ride. You're in for a rough ride. You ever notice, I don't know if it's your experience, but I been doing this a long time that many people sometimes feel like they've lost their spirituality and so they'll they'll come up with some kind of ration some kind of reason that goes like this well well brother or sister why aren't you coming to church well brother things aren't going right for me i'm not living right right now you know i i'm just going to take some time off be alone try to figure things out myself right and and then when i get Right. When I get right, well, you'll see me there. I'll be back there. Has anybody ever had that experience talking to another believer? Oh, good. It's not just me. You know what I tell those people? I say, brother, sister, you're playing right into the hands of the devil. That's what you're doing. You're playing right into the hands of the devil. He has now pulled you away from the troops from those that love you, those that are interceding for you, those that are praying for you, he's now pulled you away and you're getting ready to go dance one-on-one with the devil. And brother or sister, you may lose. And I urge them to come back. To come back. If we are not around godly people, if we are not fellowshipping with godly people, if we take our delight more from the world and those people in the world than we do than the people in the church, 
Let me share something too. I'm smart enough to know that not everybody in the church is a Christian. And I'll tell you what, God is, uh, Satan has placed some of his enemies. Many times, brother, many times Satan has placed his enemies. And so sometimes people go to church and they experience hurtful things. I'm not saying that isn't it. But what I am saying is if you are around godly men and women, then stay around the godly men and women. How will you know them? They'll be filled with the Spirit. They won't be telling you, this is what I have to tell you. They'll be telling you, this is what the Bible has to say. They'll be encouraging you with the Word of God. They'll be interceding for you. They'll be saying, come on, man, let's get together. Let's pray. Let's pray this situation. When the Word of God is omitted, when prayer is omitted, and all you're left with is human advice, let me tell you something. You're going to fall short. What we need to hear more of is God. What we need to hear more of is His Word. What we need more of are Christians that are willing to intercede and pray for one another. That's the fellowship that Acts is talking about. Not let's go bowling on Thursday night. So they came together. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were continually fellowshipping in the Spirit. There's a third thing here. They came together for the breaking of bread. And may I add... Again, the context of Acts chapter 2 is the church. So they came together for breaking of bread in the Spirit. This is a reference to partaking of the Lord's Supper, which is, by the way, which is mandatory for all Christians. There are only two ordinances given to the church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Both are to be entered in reverentially. Both are to be entered into with fear and trembling. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we tell you, and we only have a minute to do it or two minutes to do it, to silence your heart and confess any unknown uh, sin that you have to the Lord so that you partake of the Lord's table in a worthy estate. The breaking of bread is not optional. I hate to say it. It's not optional. It's to be entered into with sobriety. It is to be entered into with fear and reverence and respect. I've been in churches, and I hate to say this, but I've been in church services where it came to celebrating the Lord's table to the breaking of bread. It was a carnival-like atmosphere. That was the sin of the Corinthian church. They came together. They partook of the Lord's table. They ended up getting drunk and, and becoming gluttonous in their heart. We cannot do this. This first church did not do this. They remembered what the Lord said on that Passover night. Do this in remembrance of me. And so they came. Why? Because they were continually abiding in the apostles' teaching. And the apostles' teaching was saying, this is an ordinance given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And we are to come together and we are to celebrate the Lord's table. We are to come together and break bread one another. That fulfillment will be completed in heaven when Christ comes for His glorious unstained bride. Then there will be one last marriage supper of the Lamb and we will be in perfect communion and perfect fellowship with the Lord. But this church came. 
And as I shared with you earlier, the spiritual impacts, the formation of the church, it becomes something so distinctive to the Christian church that the accusation of the Romans were that Christians were cannibals because they were eating flesh and drinking blood. In order to make a charge against the Christian church, in order to instigate some of the persecutions, those that were antagonistic to the Christians pointed out the Lord's Supper. And they didn't understand it. They didn't understand the symbolism that this cup is my blood. That this bread is my flesh. And symbolism it always was. Jesus never, ever, ever stated, implied, or inferred. And when we come to the Lord's table, we are indeed eating the flesh and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, the, the, the writer of Hebrews makes it very clear it is by one sacrifice, one sacrifice as atonement for sin been made. So we are not to neglect the ordinance given by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, forsaking the breaking of bread. When we do that, that shows a blatant disregard for the ordinance of God. And I encourage everybody here not to forsake this ordinance, but to hold it dear, to prepare your heart. Note that this first church was birthed in power. And they continued together in the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread. What do we do here at Calvary? Why do we present the Word of God? Why are we in the book of Acts? Because we are continuing in the apostles' teaching. Why do we come out? Why do we love each other? Why do we hold each other up? Because we're continuing in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. When one hurts, we all hurt. What do we do when we come together? We come together and we celebrate the Lord's table because we continue in the breaking of bread. And then there's one fourth element here. They came together for corporate and personal prayer in the Spirit. Last part of verse 42. Oh, this is something, man, I could build a whole sermon around. But I'll say this. Oh, the necessity for praying people in the church today. How neglected is prayer in the Christian church, in the lives of Christians? Many people who call themselves Christians do not pray, and those who do pray often prayers translated. There's a laundry list for God, right? We like to do that. God, you must do this, and Lord, I really need that, and God, you know, she needs to have this, and she needs to have that. I often wonder if people know how to pray. I've purposed that we become a praying church, our Wednesday night prayer meeting, even though it's attended by very few. is turning into a mighty move of God. 
You know, on our Wednesday night prayer meeting, here's the first thing we don't do. We don't have a list of stuff to pray for. Matter of fact, we purposely and intentionally say we are gathering to praise, to give thanks, to exalt our Lord and God for all that He's done for us. And the only thing we ask for is that God would revive His people. I have heard the people pray on this prayer call the changes that this has made in their lives. I wish you would have been with us Wednesday night. The Spirit of God moved. Moved in the prayer of all the people. You go from one person to another person to another person. There was nothing selfish. It was, Father, we need you. Father, we love you. Father, come and fill us. Father, move upon your church. Father, do. It was the glory, the glory, the glory of God, the glory of God. We beseech God to move and move and move and move. Let me tell you something. We don't need another thing. We don't need more clothes. We don't need a better house. What we need is God Almighty to move upon the church of Christ. That's what we need. We need the power of Pentecost. We need the Spirit to descend upon us and move upon our hearts and grip us. The church needs to know about prayer, about waiting in prayer, about being persistent in prayer, persevering in prayer, repenting in prayer, crying in prayer, worshiping in prayer. Every great move, I say this all the time, every single great move of God was precipitated by a small group of people that have been praying, 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 and praying, and not letting go. I would encourage you, if you haven't heard it, if you go to Sermon Audio, I preached recently a passage on persistent prayer, of praying through the obstacles, of continuing, continuing to believe God, even what we don't see. A few weeks ago, we talked about Elijah on the rooftop, right? After he has that great victory on Mount Carmel, right? And he slays the prophets of Baal. But then what happens? He goes back to his room and he says, now, Lord, we're praying for rain. And he was praying for physical rain because he had prayed that it would stop raining to show who the true God was in Israel and it stopped raining for three years and he tells his servant go up on the rooftop you see any rain clouds and what did the servant came back he said there's not a a cloud in the sky it's a beautiful day Elijah he said go back up there go back up there and the servant goes back and he says I don't see a cloud and Elijah says go back seven times and on the seventh time what does the servant come back I see a cloud the size of a man's hand The rainstorm was in a distance. A a land that was dry and parched and cracking and dehydrated. Off in the distance he saw a little cloud. But he didn't know that that little cloud was going to turn into a deluge. So confident that Elijah goes to King Ahab. He says, here comes the rain. And for the first time in three years it it rains upon that land. Why do you think the Holy Spirit records that in the Holy Scriptures? To tell us that we're not to grow weary in prayer. To tell us that we are to press on. To tell us that even though we don't see the results, we're going to believe God for the results. Not for our selfish wants. We're going to believe God that God is going to move. 
For how many years have you been hearing me speak of revival? For how many years have you been hearing me saying that we believe that God is going to move in this church? For how many years? But in order for God to do so, we need to pray for the rain. And when the rain comes, our hearts will be gripped by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we won't just be meeting on Sundays. And it will not be enough. And you will be desiring your brothers and sisters in the faith. And you'll be saying, give me more, give me more, give me more. I've been reading about the great revivals of the past. This past week, reading about the uh, revivals that occurred in Scotland in the Isle of Lewis and talking about the Hebrides and the Welsh revivals as well in Wales. There is a commonality to all of them that before the revival came were small groups of people that got together and said, God, unless you intervene, God, unless you move, God, unless you do something, this nation's going to be destroyed. Let me tell you what, take a look at our nation. Go beyond our nation. Take a look at Canada. Go beyond Canada. Take a look at the world. If God does not intervene, what will become of this world? And we need to be moved by that very fact. We are seeing evil called good. Good as called evil. We are worshiping that which is false. Baal worship is going rampant in the world. We love killing babies. We love the immorality of this society. But we as God's people need to come in and believe God that Father, you're going to do another great work of revival. One more, Lord. One more move. One more move of revival in this country. And I believe that God's going to do that. I believe that God's going to do that here. Especially in these final days. For some prayers resorted to become the 911 dial for Christians. Oh, we think we know how to pray when we're in trouble, right? We, we're real passionate when we're in trouble. Oh, God, help me, blah, 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 blah. We know how to cry when our lifestyle is being threatened, don't we? And here's the worst part of it. We'll call God up when we want things, when we're being self-absorbed. But church, Christians are not to be people that are self-absorbed. Christians are people that are Christ-absorbed. We're absorbed by Him. When our prayers are self-absorbed, you know what we do? You know what we do? We want to prove our sincerity to God. So we make deals with Him. Lord, if you do this, I promise you I'm going to do that. Blah, 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 blah. And we even know when we say it, we're not sincere with that. We know our track records. And so we make all these deals because we think that if we can impress God with some words, that God could look past our indifference. He could look past our cold hearts. He could look past our sins and go, oh, the poor guy, I'm going to give them whatever they want. Church, we're to pray to have fellowship with God. It is to glorify Him, to magnify Him, to exalt Him, to seek His face and His will. And then and only then will He respond. Don't take my word for it. Trust the Scriptures. 1 Chronicles 16.11 
Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face continually. You know this one, Second Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name. Now listen, we, we, we preach this. There should be secondhand news for you. But if my people who are called by my name shall what? Humble themselves. You humble yourself in prayer? Have you ever come before the Lord in prayer and you could only mutter, Father, and you can't say another word? Because through the Holy Spirit, you realize, I'm in an audience with God. And so you sit there and you pause. You get a big lump in your throat. And you can't get past that first word, Father. That's what it means to humble ourselves. If my people will call by name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face. If you don't pray, you're not seeking the face of God. I'm just being honest with you. If the extent of your prayer life is, Lord, I thank you for this food and for the many blessings. Bless all those who do not have. In Jesus' name, amen. But you're not alone with God pleading and, and crying to him in the quiet of the morning. And you're not alone with God. You know nothing of prayer. We're to humble ourselves. We're to seek his face. What else? What else? Turn from your wicked ways. Repent. Repent. Let me tell you something about repentance. It's not a one and done. Repentance is a lifestyle. We don't repent just for what we did. We need to repent for who we are. And to get to that place of brokenness, with God. Do you think I've I've heard 2 Chronicles 7:14 quoted it it makes me vomit when I hear the politicians stand up there to appeal to the masses and say 2 Chronicles if my people and they say the United States is the people of God. No, they're not. Who are the people of God? Those that have been born again blood washed in Jesus Christ. They are the people of God. If my people, if the church comes and humbles themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then and only then will God hear from heaven. And will forgive their sins. Psalm 10, verses 3 to 5. Listen to this verse. Listen to this verse. These verses. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. You know what that's saying? When we become so self-dependent, we're so, I, I got this, I got this. We don't seek God. God equates that with wickedness. This is what he goes on to say. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper. Well, notice this. His ways prosper at all times. Thy judgments are on high, out of his sight. 
As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. And then Ephesians 6.18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Listen, Jesus was a man of prayer. Paul was a man of prayer. John the Baptist was a man of prayer. Moses was a man of prayer. David was a man of prayer. Elijah was a man of prayer. Go from Genesis to Exodus, uh, go from Genesis to Revelation, and you'll see all the men of God who are praying men of God. You'll see the women of God who are praying women of God. Hannah went in the temple and she never left. She was praying and beseeching the Lord all the time for a child. She gets the child, she gives it back to the Lord. What did she do then? She stayed in the temple praying, 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 praying. Prayer, true prayer. Most potent weapon the Christian has. To disregard prayers, to disregard God. The first church in Jerusalem was bathed in prayer. That's why we see so many powerful things taking place in that first church. And it was through the Holy Spirit. Pray through the Holy Spirit. They continued in the apostles' teaching. They continued in fellowship in the Spirit, breaking of bread in the Spirit. They continued in prayer in the Spirit and subsequently powerful things. Powerful witness was given by that first church. Church that we would become that type of church. So as we commemorate that first Pentecost Sunday, the birth of the church, we are once again reminded of four critical imprints four critical impacts that the holy spirit placed upon the church continuing in the apostles teaching fellowship in the church breaking of bread and corporate and personal prayer the holy spirit moved this church the holy spirit was evident in this church the holy spirit was characterized this church and the holy spirit baptized this church in power we must return we must return to those vital few things that were demonstrated to us historically in the first church. There's no longer time to waste. I don't know if people get this. The Bible says, now when you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Church, when you hear the voice of the Spirit speaking to you, now don't harden your heart, Hebrews 4, 7. If I had one thing, if, the, if, if, if I was going to die right after this message, after I prayed and I knew that the Lord was going to take me home, what would I say to you? I would say to you this, church, I am begging us to return to God, to repent from our indifference, from our apathy and laziness, and run to Christ. Let us fall at His feet prostrate. Let us confess this work of the Spirit we cannot accomplish in our flesh, in our religious works, and beg God for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, to be empowered with the power of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, not for our selfish gain, but for the glory of His magnificent name. 
So who will say with me today? Before this congregation. That I'm going to choose this day. To forsake all else. I will repent. I will turn from my sin. I will seek the Lord with all my heart. That I am praying for a move of the Holy Spirit. And that God will revive me. Let me tell you something. That's my heart. Every day the enemy goes to war against me to disprove that. Every day I fight for that. I'm not perfect. I have my faults and my sins. And don't be trying to figure out mine because you got enough of your own. But I'm going to tell you what. I fight for Christ. I fight for his presence. I fight the enemy. I hate the enemy. I'd spit on him if I had the chance. I'm so repulsed. But I'm fighting for Christ and I'm fighting for all of you. And I'm not grandstanding here. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I don't want anything to come back to me. I'm telling you that to live each day for Christ is war. And every day the enemy comes against me. I'm giving you personal testimony. Comes against me. And I know he comes against you. But do you fight for Christ? Or do you roll over and die? We're in a wicked day. The cost of following Jesus just went up 50,000%. And it hasn't even started to get as bad as it's going to get. How will we survive without Christ? How will we survive if we roll over and play dead? How will we survive if we're content to come to church one day a week? How will we survive if we neglect our brothers and sisters in the faith? How will we survive? We need to go forward in Christ and render everything else aside. I beg you. Now I'm afraid that I'm going to die right after I finish preaching. But I beg you, with all seriousness, with all sobriety, let us turn our hearts to Him. The Satan is roaming around like a lion seeking whom he may devour. You ever see a lion devour something? It's not nice. It's not gentle. He's going to tear at you. He's going to tear at your marriage. He's going to tear at your relationships. He's going to tear at your children. He is going to seek to divide, to rip apart. He's just dying for the Christian who's going to go, I can't do this anymore. He's going to stand alone. There is no other way. There's no other way. C.T. Studd wrote a great poem, and you probably may have heard this line, but it goes, but only one life, so soon it will pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. 
only what's done for Christ. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Holy Father, sometimes it becomes so plain and obvious both what you require and both regarding our indifference. We use that word painfully obvious. I can ask, Lord, that the person of the Holy Spirit would turn our hearts to you, O oh God. I know, Lord, that the enemy is here trying to turn people's hearts and minds and attention away. And I'm asking you right now, Lord, that you would bind him and rebuke him. That every principality, every demon of hell, right at this instant, Lord, would, would leave. Father, we need to be shaken. Your word tells us that a bruised reed you will not break. But many, many of us have not even been broken. Father, we pray for the majesty, the glory, the honor, the fear of you. Father, grip, grip, grip our hearts, O oh God. Help us to turn from our wicked ways, O oh God. To cry out to you for mercy, dear God. Extend your hand right at, this, right at this very moment, Lord God, to bring about repentance and confession and conviction and contrition, Lord. And let us cry out to Christ, whoever lives to make intercession for us, that you would be exalted, O oh God. Pour forth your spirit, dear God. In power, in might. That, Lord, we would be 
filled with the power of Pentecost. That you may grant that thy servants may speak thy word with all boldness. Father, I ask you that today the burden and the weightiness of the Holy Spirit would be upon us. Until such time, Lord, you have your perfect will and way in our life. We thank you for this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen.